Well, in a time when we're experiencing significant discord in our world, a new book explains why we need to get into the messes in our lives, relationships and world and not try to smooth things over. Our guest is the renowned psychologist Ed Tronick, known for the famous still face experiment. That was an experiment studying whether infants are active contributors to social interactions, which has since become crucial to understanding child development and predicting child behaviour. And more on that later. Ed's latest work, co-written with paediatrician Dr Claudia Gold, is called The Power of Discord. It explains that human interactions are messy, complicated and confusing. But that's a good thing, and it's actually crucial to our social and emotional development. Dr Ed Tronick is a developmental neuroscientist, clinical psychologist and the co-founder of the Child Development Unit at Boston Children's Hospital and the Touchpoints Programme. He's a distinguished professor of psychology and director of the Infant Parent Mental Health Programme at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and a research associate in newborn medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's the author of five books and more than 450 scientific papers. His current research focuses on the behaviour and physiology of infants and mothers coping with stress. Ed, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Why did this become your life's work, infant development and social-emotional development? What started you in this area? I I started working on social-emotional development when I was uh, uh, a graduate student. I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I had the opportunity to work in um, Harry Harlow's laboratory. And he's the scientist who uh, did the experiments with uh, monkeys being reared on surrogates as opposed to being reared by their mothers. And he showed how powerful the effect of social interaction was on the development of children. And at that time, we really knew very little about what infants and young children were really doing in in the world. Um, and I just kind of got caught up with it uh, in, in some early work. And I've, I've been, uh, I suppose, stuck there ever since. The 1975 still face experiment and what we learned from it. I must admit it's quite discomforting to watch. I was watching a video um, and quite discomforting to watch the, the distress actually that emerges eventually when a mother who is interacting and mirroring and communicating in the way we know mums and babies so lovely to watch it happening but then turns around with a, with a face that's just, you know, um, motionless. Um, it's quite difficult to watch. And what was it that you learned as a result of doing the experiment? I learned quite a bit from that experiment. The original, the, the, the experiment that you saw, the original experiment, was to explore the hypothesis that we had that infants were really active and participatory in their social interactions, that they could read emotions, and that when they read the emotions, when they understood the emotions, that they reacted in terms of what the emotions um, meant to them. And at the time that I did the experiment, we had a view of infants that they were unable to, uh, to respond to 
uh, social stimuli, that they couldn't pick up on emotions, that in some sense they were um, kind of what Freud called them. They, they just were either in distress or they were, in, uh, they were just quiet. Uh, and the experiment showed that when you changed the mother's behavior, when she was ready to interact with the infant, that that had a profound effect on, on the infant and how they wanted to uh, engage with, with the mother. The infant was, was reading and responding and reacting, and then when there was nothing there, was doing all sorts of things to try and get the response and then becomes distressed for a moment. This is only a few seconds, we should say. But it just reveals how participatory they are, but also how sophisticated they are in interpreting whatever they're interpreting from their yes. primary caregiver, their primary connection. Right. They uh, respond to uh, mothers, fathers, and if strangers are interacting with them and are sensitive to them, they'll respond to a, a stranger doing it. So from, the, from that experiment, what we've we've come to know about infants is that their social capacities are really quite quite remarkable and that being in relationships is absolutely critical to to their development how did this discovery lead to a wider application, the observation that rather than being smooth and perfectly in sync, that we are constantly mismatching and then adjusting and then getting in sync. This is the story of our lives. <laughs> well, it is the story of our lives. And when when we're doing well, um, we... We are mismatching. Uh, the way it came out of the experiment with the still face was, while I, I fully understand why it seems disturbing or it is disturbing to watch the infant react to the mother not reacting to them, the mother refusing to interact with them. What you saw when you looked at the still face, when you looked at when the mother and the infant started interacting again, what you saw was very quickly they got back in sync yes. with one another and very quickly they were attuned to one another and they were going back and forth with one another. Uh, and what, what I realized was that the still face part of the experiment was in some sense a mismatch, a really big mismatch. The infant wants to interact and the mother doesn't. When they re-engage with one another, they actually repaired the interaction. And what you could see was that the infant gets smiles, gets positive. He may have been, the infant may have been distressed during the still face, but once they renew the interaction, they almost always get back in tune with one another. So they were able to, um, the word I use is to repair the discord that they experienced during the still face. So repair of a situation is the crux of human interaction. I think it's been estimated that humans are actually only in sync, as you put it, about 30% of the time. So we're completely in the flow with where each other's at, perhaps only 30% of the time. Um, 
And what is the other 70% about? We, we might intuit that it's negative, but actually, is it? What's happening the other 70%? What, what's happening there is we, we spend a lot of time just looking at regular face-to-face play between mothers and infants. And we saw what you just said, that about 70% of the time, uh, the mother and the infant weren't really doing the same thing together. They might not be looking at each other. They might be making different facial expressions. The baby might be playing with the strap. The mother wants to play peekaboo. Um, all sorts of uh, messiness in the interaction. And I think the messiness comes for many reasons. One is we were looking at infants and um They have limitations about how quickly they can pick up on information. But even if you think about adults interacting, facial expressions last maybe a third or a really long one might last half a second. But think that you're picking up that those changes in facial expressions all of the time. So after a while, there's in some sense just too much information to pick to be picked up. Also, sometimes you misread what someone is saying. I, you know, maybe it never happens in your um, relationships, but you know, uh, I'm interacting with with my wife, and I think she's saying, "Oh, let's do something," and in fact, she's really wanting to say, "No, we're not going to uh, be doing that." So the the, the mismatches are inevitable in the interaction. Um, There's just simply no way to avoid them. And our mission to be competent, if I can put it that way, in our relationships is to search for the answer to the mismatch. Um, And we'll come back to things like social regulation in a moment and the motivation to do that. But when we are interacting healthily, we are looking for the answer to the mismatch and to get, get into sync again. Yes, and, and what's critical about getting back into sync is that it has a lot of positive effects. When, you, when you're mismatching, there's, especially if it's a sort of big mismatch, you know, there's negative affect, you feel stressed, you feel you know, annoyed with the other person, you feel like you really don't want to be interacting with them. But when you repair the mismatch, and you get back in sync, your negative emotions and stress get transformed into positive emotions. You feel, and I think this is really critical, you feel connected to the other person. You help to strengthen your relationship. And for young infants, but I think really for all of us, you come to feel like I can really trust this other person with my feelings and that we can get back together again and overcome any small or big problems that we have to deal with. Can we stay with with life development at the moment? Because I'd really appreciate this. In, in child development in particular, we're talking about we're talking about infants really in that first instance um, under twos and that incredibly important attachment process, right, with, uh, yes. with a primary caregiver, with a parent. As that child is growing, though, into a toddler and beyond, um, this is not just about building attachment and trust and a sense of 
competence in a young child. This is also about those brain connections, right? Um, and how can a caregiver literally build their child's brain connections and sophistication through negative and positive interactions? What you call the dance, I think. Is, well, again, when I first started doing um, this this research, we had no idea that um, social interaction was so critical for brain development. And if you start with uh, a young infant and think about a, a child of one year, then two years, then three years, all during that period of time, different parts of the brain are beginning to mature and beginning to interact with one another. And the stress of uh, inter, uh, the stress of mismatches, the positive affect of mismatches has a really powerful effect on making brain connections, on elaborating the development of uh, what we call, most typically called the emotional brain, the amygdala and the hippocampus, which have to really powerful effects on social development. But they also lead to... Um, connections and the elaboration of the uh, cortical areas, which have to do both with cognition, but also with social emotional control. What is the importance of self-regulation? How does it differ from self-control? Probably in common parlance, you could substitute one for the other. Uh, what I mean by self-regulation um, has has quite quite a broad meaning, but it but essentially it means that you're able to um, keep keep control of your physiologic and emotional systems in the face of um, some kind of stress. So when we look at the still face, the still face dysregulates the infant or it's a, it's a dysregulating stimulus. But what we see most infants do, and you, you saw it when you, you looked at the video, is that at first the infants try to cope and they keep themselves under emotional control. But over time, their capacity to regulate themselves um, kind of wears thin, and they use up the resource for doing that. And when they use up um, their regulatory capacities, they become distressed and they become disorganized, and they're not able in a, they're not able to put themselves back together again. Is this an attribute, and we'll talk more about the people you work with in a moment, but this is, is this an attribute that a parent hopefully has learned and developed, but actually transfers to the child? One has to self-regulate one's own reactions, but you are also um, the communicator of the skill, the nourisher yes. of the skill in a child. Well, one way to think about parenting, and perhaps this is a little bit too mechanical, is that the infant has capacities to regulate themselves. They can deal with some stressors in the environment. They can deal, for example, 
with uh, something like the still face or a really loud noise. And they can try to hold themselves together. But very quickly, especially young infants, use up that capacity. And what the adult does is provide uh, provide regulatory capacity. The, the, um, the parent shares or helps the infant to control himself. And these are things that um, are really obvious. It's the parent, for example, who's holding a distressed child and cooing to them and talking to them. And as that input is, as the parent is providing that regulatory support, the baby starts to calm down. And then the baby is able to work with the parent in controlling herself in the face of whatever it was that was stressing the infant. So what you have to think is that the infant is part of a system and the other part of the system is the parent or the carer. And the carer provides resources for the infant that the infant is not able to provide for themselves. And of course, over time, the infant becomes more and more capable of regulating themselves and develops more and more resources, given that they've had the support of the parent along the way. And interestingly, what's happened, they've got back in sync through the parents calming and soothing. Could we talk about some examples? Um, there's one here, this is an older older child, this is Luke and his parents, and why his disruptive behaviour was neither his nor his parents' fault, um, and the way the blame game can get in the way of fixing something. I think this may actually have been your co-author's experience. Forgive me, I don't have the book with me um, this morning. I left it at home. But could we talk a little bit about the situation, the clinical situation they were in, and what happened as they were clearly out of sync and fractious, and then gradually how things unfolded? Could you explain? Well, I can try try to explain. You're right that this is is an example that comes from Claudia Gold, and it's an example from her pediatric practice. And here's a, here's a little boy who's having beha- what we would what we call behavioral problems. He's too reactive to everything. He gets distressed really easily um, in school. He's problematic. Um, he has problems in relating to other other children, and the parents. Um, are very concerned about this behavior, but they they themselves are unable to figure out a way to um, help him to uh, control himself. And the typical way that we deal with a, a situation like that, or the pediatricians often deal with it, is uh, very quickly to give advice um, to um, say, oh, here's what you should be doing. And we've all received advice like that. But what's being missed when you, get, when you give advice that quickly is you fail to get a full picture of what's going on. Um, and I think in the example with Luke, 
there's a situation in which um, the parents are having some issues, and these are issues between them, and these are issues that affect this little boy, and of course, he gets disrupted by that, and he gets worried about that. And if you simply give the parents advice, like, try this technique, it's not going to speak to the issue that he is having in this situation. And so a really critical part of what we're saying when we talk about the messiness um, is to be willing to listen to what's going on, to try and see the whole picture, if you will, of what might be going on and where the mismatch comes from. Um, you know, typically with a, a little boy like Luke, people say, oh, he's not interested or he's just being bad to get attention or some kind of explanation like that. But most of the time, children with behavioral problems are reacting to something that's going on in the environment. It might be with their parents. It might be something at school. It might be in relationship with his teachers and other children in the class. And if you don't get the full picture of it, then you're not able to repair the situation. Our guest is Ed Tronica, pioneer really in understanding uh, infants and children and their uh, neuroscience and behaviour and their developmental needs. You're listening to Nine to Noon on RNZ National. His book, co-authored with Claudia Gold, is called The Power of Discord. It was interesting, Ed, I think in that case, the parents were agitated, the boy was agitated, one parent stormed out of the room, and then the yes. other parent and the child gradually started to, to communicate, right. which is a lesson, isn't it, on how everybody's got to find a way to come out of their... Um, red rag stage and get back to asking the questions, as you said. Um, I am interested. It, it does amaze me, given how much we know now, and I'm beginning to learn how much of this is due to the work that you and your peers have done, how much we know about this now, that in 1975 this was so novel. You know, we just thought that babies were a little bit like sort of dolls in some ways mentally and or, yes. or, or in, it, it's quite extraordinary how far we've come I would like to learn a little more though about your Hello It's Me project which helps families in crisis, crisis um, and also the work you've done with struggling mothers who are addicts where mm -hmm. a person is for whatever reason in a parenting situation and perhaps without these own um, facilities well developed in them themselves, how can you at that point intervene and get them to where they need to be so they can be where their child needs them to be? Could you talk mm -hmm. what you do with them? Well, in the Hello, It's Me project, which is working with um, uh, primarily with women, but it would, works with parents who have addiction uh, problems. You have someone who's, um, I think, using the, uh, the drug 
to uh, to choose a word, to self-regulate themselves. It's a way of gaining control of themselves. It may not be an effective uh, way and it may not foster their well-being, but it helps them to deal with the stresses in their situation. The hello it's me part of it is that these are women who are having having a, a baby, a new baby. And a new baby is a really wonderful opportunity um, to change how, how you are in the world, to make changes about yourself. In fact, being with a new baby, really relating to a new baby, demands that you be open to the experience of what the baby is like and that you allow yourself to adjust and change to the baby. And the baby also has a really powerful powerful effect on the parent. It can't be overstated. And the baby brings, despite all the crying and the distress and the sleep fatigue, what the, what the baby does is bring all sorts of positive emotions into um, into the relationship. And, and so what you're seeing is, um, when I use the term messiness in relationships, what you're seeing is with the birth of a new, new baby and the early development, you're in a very disorganized, very messy period of time. But what comes out of the messiness, it comes out of the messiness in relationships, but it also comes out of the messiness even in development, is that you can create something new out of the messiness. Um, That when you make the adjustment to the infant, you're beginning to figure out some new way of interacting with them. And you can build on that. And it also gives you new emotions and new feelings that you can have about yourself and about the infant. Um, So that period of time is a a really special period of time, and it's a time when working with parents can not only addicted parents with addiction problems, but it can not only help them to help the infant, which is really critical, but it can also give them a chance to reorganize themselves and to change themselves. It's a very good reason to have as much support as can possibly be surrounding someone because it is an opportunity as well as sometimes a risk um, given the, um, the, the circumstances that people are in. Can, mm-hmm. we, can we talk about this applicability of your research to, to our um, adult relationships, to our intimate partnerships, to our workplace relationships? Could you speak for a moment on the importance of analysing moments of misunderstanding? We all instinctively go into our fight or flight. We all get the red rag. That's why we get told, you know, count to 10 before reacting. But even beyond that immediate response, what is it we can achieve if we can analyze better what's happened and then navigate a path back to sync or the best sync we can find with someone? What happens in um, intimate relationships, uh, and I think most people experience this, is... uh, 
not unlike infants and parents, is that we come to understand, not necessarily consciously, or sometimes it's conscious, um, that this is someone we can really trust that um, they will respond to us and that they will, when there is a problem, that they will um, act to try and make the situation better. And, and what's critical about the messiness, is there are a lot of things that are critical about it. But one is that um, relationships which have a certain amount of messiness about them, you're always creating something new. You're always finding something new to be doing with this person. Um, uh, the way I think about it um, is that given the way uh, at least I dance with uh, with my wife. There are there are brief periods of time when we're in sync with one another, which feels really great. And then there are much longer periods of time when we're out of sync with one another. But when we resolve that being out of sync, all of a sudden we trust each other. We feel connected. We feel really excited. At least I feel really excited about it. And we may be doing a dance step that we've never done before um, or some kind of step that we've never done before. And then, of course, we fall out of synchrony. Um, relation, one of the things we saw with the infants was um, that the relation, that parent-child relationships, which were the most contingent, were the ones actually that looked the most problematic. So you would see infant and mother kind of always doing the same thing, always having the same kind of interchange with one another. Often the interchange was actually negative. The mother would do something negative, the baby would do something back. The mother would look to the baby and the baby would turn away. So there was a really high level of contingency but it was all around in the negative domain. And there was, in some sense, very little messiness, very little non-contingency in the interaction. Whereas the good interactions are ones that have messiness that gets resolved and then the contingency moves into the positive domain. Which is that's, the same, that's the same as what happens in adult relationships, intimate relationships where problems are starting to really take hold. The, the two individuals interact with each other in a really stereotypic, negative kind of way. One makes the argument, the other one reacts back. One reacts back, the other one has the same reaction they had yesterday to what happened. And they're, they're really stuck in a highly contingent but negative dance. Really, really interesting stuff. I could go on for a long time with you. I need to let you go, Ed. Thank you very much. Dr. Ed Tronick uh, has co-authored with Dr. Claudia Gold The Power of Discord. We were talking a lot about um, infancy and children and parenting, but it goes into um, intimate relationships, workplace relationships, healing from war trauma in one case.